my entire approach is to shift away from this idea of self-defense as being the way we manage violence. That's like being in fire management and saying the way we manage fire is with hoses. Welcome to The Circuit Magazine, the number one source of information on protection matters, the industry-leading magazine for all security professionals who want to stay ahead of the game. Managing violence and the concept of pre-zillions. Today, live and in person, we're going to be talking with Joe Saunders, host of the Managing Violence podcast and also uh, part of the Risk2 Solution Group out of Australia. I'm here with Sean West. Now, we've had Joe Saunders on before, but this time I think it's different. The concept of pre-zillions, doesn't that tell us something about the state of use of force in the EP industry? Yeah, I, like, I quite like the term resilience. It's the first time I've heard it, actually. Um, reminds me a lot of Cooper's colour codes, in a sense. So when you're walking around as a, as a bodyguard, and they say the general individual in the public walks around in code white, which is blissfully unaware of anything that goes on in their surroundings. And Jeffrey Cooper, he, he said it was clear of a set of colour codes. So code white was relaxed. Yellow was almost a, a relaxed alertness. And that's what we should be walking around as an individual bodyguard. And when something piques your attention, you go into code orange, it makes you more alert. And then code red is when the incident happens. If you're walking around in code white and then you get caught in an incident, blissfully unaware, you get a big adrenaline dump and you, you can be caught like a rabbit in the headlights, not prepared at all. So I think resilience, it, it kind of goes down that line on that front. I've changed it into the different colour codes, but I think it's, there's a, definitely a relevance there. Certainly crossover. And, 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 it, and it's crucial, especially for some of the newer entrants um, into the industry, that they realize that fisticuffs, uh, you know, judo skills pay the bills. Yes, but very rarely, very rarely. It, is, it would be a very bad day to get into a, you know, that, that type of incident, wouldn't it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, our role as a CPO, our CP operative, we're paid for threat avoidance. Obviously, it's like insurance if the incident comes and you have to get involved, then you need to have the skills to do so. But ideally, the skills you have and your situa- situational awareness will hopefully you know, avoid that situation from happening in the first place. And it's wonderful to see Joe in the, you know, in the flesh, in person, over here on what is for him a European tour, just for the next couple of weeks at least. But this is an example, perhaps, of where we've been resilient. I don't know. Sorry, Joe, if I'm taking your term out of context, but we've been resilient, haven't we? Over the last two years, we've gotten to know many people uh, virtually. I know many people knew uh, Joe before, uh, you know, the pandemic, but but now here he is in uh, person, and I think I think that's testament to you know using the opportunities over these last uh, two years. What, what what do you think, Sean? No, I agree. I mean, we. I mean, testament to you, you know, with the podcast and your different events you hold, you know, it's opened so many people's networks to places where they couldn't reach previously. And it's always great to meet them actually in person, in face, albeit I'm doing this as a podcast virtually. But yeah, no, it's great to put a face to the name, especially when we go to these physical events. It's always, you know, fantastic to meet these new people. And Joe and, and of course, Gav Snyder out in Australia have really, really helped us. And, and I know they even joined our uh, Circuit Magazine event on uh, managing violence you know, last year. So, so this will be a very nice uh, progression. Let's get into it with Joe Saunders, host of Managing Violence podcast 
let's look at pre-resilience and the managing violence topic. And now, let's meet one of the contributors to The Circuit magazine. Joe Saunders, welcome to London, host of the Managing Violence podcast and so many other things. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. London's turned on the weather for us and it's, uh, it's been, been a beautiful couple of days. I've uh, arrived yesterday, first full day today. A bit of a bit of a walk through Kensington Gardens, and uh, now catch up with you. And so, what are you what are you here to do? Because it's quite a long way. Are you on a road trip? Yeah, well, it, it wasn't exactly just out of the way. <laughs> this is uh, so. Uh, so I'm doing a, the managing violence tour of UK and Switzerland. Uh, it was originally UK, but then we tacked on Switzerland into one of the gaps. Uh, so uh, I'm going to be teaching uh, my managing violence masterclass in Oxford uh, starting tomorrow. Uh, so Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Then I jump on a plane and we go to Zurich. Uh, we're teaching uh, two days in Zurich, uh, and then a day privately in Zurich, and then come back to England. Uh, I teach a couple of days in Kidderminster, and then uh, have a little, little bit of time off to sightsee back in London before finishing up with another three-day masterclass in Cambridge. So, yeah, it's a it's a pretty full itinerary uh, for a couple of weeks, but uh, it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's pretty intense. Um, why do you think, obviously there's an opportunity to travel, so that's great, mm. uh, but why do you think now is the time to manage violence? Is, is this a sort of a post-pandemic violence managing tour? Um, look, I, I think it's something that for me has been topical for a long time. Uh, but what, I, what I'm finding is that more and more people are interested in learning more about this now. There's Maybe people are just being exposed a little bit more to those lower level antisocial behaviors. Uh, they're wondering a little bit more about how to manage those situations. Uh, one of the big emphasis of, of this tour, uh, and indeed my, my entire approach, is to shift away from this idea of self-defense as being the way we manage violence. Like that, that's like being in... Uh, you know, being uh, in, in fire management and saying the way we manage fire is with hoses. Like, no, that's a tool that you use in specific situations, but clearly it'd be better to not have the fire. Clearly it'd be better to be able to put the fire out early. Clearly it'd be better to have the appropriate PPE, the appropriate uh, fire control mechanisms available for each environment and not just have to wait until the fire brigade arrives with big hoses to be able to put the fire out. So to me, it's like we, we need to evolve our understanding of this. So I don't say I teach self-defense anymore. I say I teach violence prevention and management because those are that is what I do. Uh, my, my priority is teaching people how to prevent violence from happening, whether that's through their own conduct, whether it's the way they see the world, whether it's the emotions and everything they're projecting. Uh, and sometimes we can project a lot of negative stuff into the world without thinking about how that's affecting the people around us. Uh, but, uh, but also how, to, how you can read those cues in others, how you can... Uh, I guess how, how you can identify the potential for violence, whether it's social violence. So our master classes are broken up into a day for social violence and a day for predatory violence. Social violence is nearly 100% preventable. It's a, it's a disagreement. It's a miscommunication. It's something that uh, we can manage if we're aware of it, if we have enough time for it, and we have enough knowledge uh, and the circumstances allow for it, then yes, we can manage social violence. Uh, predatory violence, okay, harder to prevent. Okay, in terms of you can't really talk your way out of a predatory violent crime because you can't de-escalate someone who's not escalated. They're, they're actually doing this because they want to, right? <laughs> because they've decided you're a good target. But then we look at what are the things we can do to make sure we're not good targets. 
how do we how do we change that equation so that a predator doesn't choose us or doesn't choose our home or doesn't choose our family how do we change those dynamics and what are some of the red flags and the warning signs we can look for to make sure that doesn't happen if it does happen how do we manage that in the in the moment but again it's not self-defense it's not about a risk grab escape or how to escape from a bear hug like that's those are the tiny 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 little pieces that you're probably never going to need to know but everyone teaches in a self-defense class like does does your four-year-old need to know how to escape from a bear hug because i guarantee your four-year-old is not going to escape a bear hug of a 35 year old man if they're going to pick, pick that child up all right so let's rather teach predator proofing strategies for parents so that 35 year old man never gets close to your child like, so that's the big picture violence prevention and management um to, to answer your question it's mostly because there's a there's an appetite for it now people are, are starting to listen um, certainly uh, pe- the good people of the UK have uh, a couple of my hosts have put their hand up to make this tour possible so uh, so yeah that's that's why now I guess and because obviously it hasn't been possible the last two years <laughs> so. yeah you've got to seize the opportunity when it uh, presents itself much as I'm seizing this opportunity you know once in a once in a few years opportunity to see you yes um, now obviously in the world of executive protection uh, use of force and regulations therefore has has been really key and there are of course some countries where you still can't use uh, use of force. Japan, bodyguards, uh, we heard from uh, Kenji Okamoto uh, maybe a few episodes ago that they become facilitators. Um, why, do, why do you think that is? Is it, is it the preserve of the state or, 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 or is it something deeper? Uh, look, there's, there's many answers to that question. Uh, I do think states in general, I mean, if you, if you uh, read uh, a great book, uh, Better, Better Angels of Our Nature by Stephen Pinker, uh, a great book about the history of violence and humanity and the way why we have the safest society we've ever had in our in our current lifetime. Uh, but states will seek to monopolize violence, right? and in a perfect world, that's probably a good solution because if the state is moral and democratic and so on, then if the state has a monopoly on violence, then everyone is in theory safer. Uh, so there there is an element of that, especially in more autocratic societies. Uh, but uh, I do think that this idea of the protector having to be a violent person or capable of great violence uh, it's it's such a small part of what we actually do and and I think it's something that we have to be very aware of that hey you're going to travel to countries where you can't carry anything so if your whole way of keeping your client safe is that you're going to draw your firearm in a country where you can't possess a firearm then you are now a yeah, to, to use a phrase that one of my colleagues uses, you're a chocolate fire guard. <laughs> like you have you have absolutely no capability then if everything was on that tool. Same as any sort of empty hand skills, they're obviously you're never going to be prevented from having hands. But if you're relying exclusively on your ability to react, then you actually miss the whole point of what we're supposed to be doing, which is preventing the bad thing from happening, not reacting when it does happen. Right. So reacting is fine for the situations that weren't preventable, but by and large, a lot of situations are very preventable. So, to, to me, I think it's uh, you, you obviously have to be aware of where you're operating, what the rules are, what the regulations are. I mean, obviously, I'm from Australia. Uh, we have pretty tight laws about a lot of things, as you do here in the UK. Uh, so, you, it's about creative problem solving. And at the end of the day, uh, like executive protection, bodyguarding, whatever you want to call it, it's it's a risk management function. So, think like a risk manager. And where does that tie in with? I know your good friend and colleague uh, Dr. Gav Snyder and presilience. What's mm. that tie in with the concept? Yeah, so I mean, presilience is really an underpinning concept that that uh, ties in across the spectrum when it comes to everything we do with risk management. So uh, I, I guess probably the, the easiest way to, to explain that would be to, to look at uh, 
compliance, the, the word compliance as uh, sort of basically what we need to do to be functional, to be able to be licensed, to be insured, all those kinds of things. That's kind of like your baseline level of risk management. Okay, if you can't achieve compliance, then you really shouldn't be in business. Okay, so that's minimum standard. What we see is a lot of companies and to that extent individuals that treat compliance as the goal, right? That's the standard they need to get to. But no, like for something to be compliance, to be regulated, to be mandated by the government, that means that it has gone wrong so many times in the past with such severe consequences that they have to make you do it, right? That's what compliance means. That should not be a standard you're aiming for. That should be like the bare minimum cost of entry. Uh, once you've got compliance, then we can move into resilience, okay? So because we know that compliance doesn't stop bad things from happening. Okay? It will stop the dumb things from happening maybe. It might stop the obvious things from happening, but it's not gonna stop everything from happening. So resilience then is the ability to bounce back when those bad things happen. Okay? To be able to keep functioning, keep moving. Yeah, in the bodyguarding world, it's stop the bleed, make sure everyone stays alive, right? Do the lessons learned, figure out what we could have done differently. That's resilience. Resilience then is proactive resilience. It's what can we do before the fact to be able to hopefully make sure it didn't happen, to be prevent preventative, but also when something does happen, because we know that no matter how good you are at prevention, there's always gonna be things that will slip through the cracks. Whether it's an intelligence failure, whether it's a resourcing failure, whether it's in the, in the executive protection world, it's a client that overruled every possible common sense strategy that you've put in place and you're now in a really bad situation. So we know things are gonna happen. Resilience then is how do we, one, manage that as quickly as possible, to bounce back and, and be safe and functional. But three, also, how do we learn those lessons to make sure we're not just bouncing back, we're bouncing forward. So every time that something bad happens, we should be getting better as a result of that. Uh, and that's something that a lot of companies miss, whether we're talking about corporate risk management, enterprise risk management, security risk management, anything, anything uh, of the above, is that you shouldn't be wasting crises. <laughs> you shouldn't be wasting these valuable lessons. Like if we went back now, we're speaking in March 2022. If we went back and said we want the world to be exactly as it was in March 2019, we would have missed and wasted this incredible period of time that we've lived through with things that we've learned, technologies we've developed, capacities we've developed. Like going back to how things were is not the way forward. It's how do we make March 2023 better than March 2019 was? Right? And that's what resilience is about preventing where possible managing quickly and making sure that we learn the lessons that are available from anything that we go through. So I think to, to connect that back to the, what we're talking about with violence prevention, uh, violence prevention and management, it really is a resilience approach. It's about how do we prevent the bad things from happening, okay? whether that's whether we're talking about social violence, predatory violence, attacks on principle, whatever. Uh, how do we manage those situations if they do slip through the cracks? Because there are going to be times that you, if you have a public figure, they're going to be public <laughs> and they're going to be interacting with the public because that's their job so there are going to be times when you haven't been able to risk assess everybody that's in that autograph line uh and that's just the nature of the beast and you're going to have to sometimes intervene and act and that's why your drills are so important and you have a well-trained team and good exfil strategies and all those things but then how do we do a lessons learned after that to make sure that if there was something that could have been done that we document that and we decide whether that's feasible to do in the future and hopefully improve those SOPs for that client in that location, even if it is that specific. But in a managing violence context, could we say resilience was actually de-escalation in, in, in a practical sense? Mm. Uh, and, and if it is de-escalation, if we're looking for that skill for the protector, how, how do we do that? Mm. So 
de-escalation is, is absolutely part of it because you, it's anything you can do to prevent the violence from happening. I would actually go a step further before that though and say, well, let's not create an opportunity for things to escalate. So how do we prevent the triggers in the first place? Not just de-escalate once we see the trigger, but how do we prevent the trigger? Uh, and now obviously not everyone in executive protection has enough say so or the relationship with their client to guide a lot of these decisions, but something as simple as how do they portray themselves in the media? Is someone vetting their, their speeches if they're someone that's known for putting their foot in their mouth, right? That is gonna cause, in, gonna cause conflict, is going to cause uh, you know, some sort of comeback that, uh, as a result of what they've said, how they presented themselves, what they wore to an event, whatever, right? Uh, that is all violence management or violence prevention and management because it's about recognizing the things that are not gonna go down well, that it's gonna lead to heightened tensions that we're gonna have to manage in the future. So how do we prevent that from happening? Um, De-escalation certainly has a place when someone has someone is emotional. Okay, so they're escalating emotionally, hence de-escalation. Um, but uh, it, it is important for protectors to be aware of the fact that just because de-escalation skills are good, de-escalation doesn't apply in every situation. Okay, if this is an immediate attack on principle. De-escalation, we probably missed that boat because we didn't know that person three rows back was escalating because we didn't have eyes on them or they're hiding it well. Or maybe this is a premeditated predatory attack, okay, where there's been a lot of planning that's gone involved, which means that person emotionally is not escalated in this moment. If anything, they're actually excited because they're going to do the thing they've been seeking to do. So de-escalation may not be possible there. But what we can use can do then if we're talking about verbal skills is we can use verbal skills to stall, to, to collect information, to allow our, our uh, principal to exfiltrate, uh, to allow the other team members to rally, to be able to use, um, yeah, if we'd add an event or something, use event security to be able to control a scene. Like there's, there's things we can do verbally that can allow and buy us time or change the direction or change the circumstances. Uh, but look, I think everyone should have de-escalation skills even just for the sake of your own marriage, <laughs> let, let alone anything else, right? So, yeah. And, and that has come up on the Circuit Podcast before. Even recently, we talked about having a good family uh, life balance. Uh, how, how do you not have an argument with a spouse, a partner, somebody whilst you're at work? Because you really imagine you're in the home of an ultra high net with an individual, you're having some sort of argument. Um, you mentioned that it, it's a good skill. I, I, I'm tempted to ask, how can we learn? Because <laughs> I'd like to learn. I have some excellent seminars coming up. No, we're, pro this, we're probably going to be a little bit late by the time this comes out for me to plug the seminars. Uh, but uh, look, a large part of de-escalation within close personal relationships, and I'm not talking about random person at the bar that you spill a drink on or whatever. Right? I mean, that's, it's the same principles, just it's a little bit different. When you've got a relationship with somebody, you have to pay attention to that person and understand their quirks and understand the ways they communicate their stress. And what are those early signs that you can go, well, I don't have to deal with that yet? No, pay attention to those signs. Like I, I make the joke all the time. I can tell what, what mood my wife's in by how loud her footsteps are walking up and down the hallway. Because right? I know that as soon as, like, I've got four young kids. Like if the, t if the kids have been testing her all night, those footsteps are a lot heavier. Mm -hmm. right? So that means I proactively go out and I make her a cup of tea or I go, I go and do something without being asked to do it, to make that situation a little bit better. So that is uh, something that, as it, from a relationship point of view that I manage, is being aware. Also be aware of your own baggage. Be aware of your own mood. Be aware of how you're projecting that. And especially for protectors or people that maybe, especially if we've got listeners in law enforcement, there are going to be things that you deal with at work that you don't want to share when you get home okay? or that you can't share when you get home. And that that's fine within a degree okay we need to we need to it's probably a much bigger topic to have a bigger conversation to have about that but if you're carrying around that baggage with you that is going to come out in the way you interact with your 
spouse, with your kids, with your friends, with your parents, whoever. Because if you are fighting, an, if you're having an argument in your head or you're, you're rehashing a negative situation in your head, when someone asks you a question and you answer just a little bit shorter, a little bit sharper, a little bit snappier, because they can't tell that you're in an argument in your head, <laughs> well, of course they're going to think it's personal and it's about them. Mm. And now you're having a two-front war because the first war was inside your head and they didn't know about it. So self-awareness is key. It's not to say, oh, well, they know what they're getting into. It's like, no, that doesn't give you an excuse to be a jerk. Yeah, it's like, it's like when people say, why won't my spouse support me on my new business venture? Yeah. Well, they're a key stakeholder. You've got to get the buy-in. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's not a default <laughs> setting that they have to. Right? Um, in fact, if you're with someone who supports all your dumb ideas, um, that's probably going to be a problem too. <laughs> Eventually, you're going to need someone who says, actually, this sounds a lot like the dumb idea you had three years ago. Right. And then you might have, and that can be an uncomfortable conversation to have, but sometimes you need to reflect and say, is it different than the one I did three years ago? That's probably, again, another topic. But relating it, in fact, to managing the expectations of high net worth individuals, the world of the EP operator in, in at least that, that sort of environment, it sounds like ideal for managing random expectations of somebody who might be that might be quite moody you want to de-escalate internally um, deal with some 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 quite uh, interesting quirks hmm. um, and, 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 and I, I think there's real value to be had yeah agreed and, and probably the second thing I'll say about relationships and this does tie in really nicely to, to you know, difficult or challenging clients is that you, you have to understand what makes them tick you have to understand what they're actually why they're in this world and what they're actually trying to achieve and what are the things that motivate them uh, and this is where we see a lot of conflict with protectors and protectees is that our priority is different to their priority and and to them we might be seen or security itself the whole notion of security is a burden not something that is keeping them safe because they're not value, like what drives them is not their own safety what drives them is the next record deal or the interaction with the fans or that rush while they're on stage or the like the, the licensing deal, whatever it is that is, that is making them get up in the morning to go chase and work. You, know, you have to understand what that is because then you can connect everything that you do and everything you need them to do back to what matters to them, not what matters to you because no one cares what matters to you. Uh, um, I have this conversation with uh, security managers in different organizations when we're trying to get, uh, trying to work with them to help them get buy-in for projects they're trying to achieve or, uh, you know, or getting the you know, funding through for whatever they're trying to, trying to make happen within their companies. Uh, part of what we do at Risk2 Solution as consultants is working within different stakeholders and finding out if we've got a problem to solve, what is the institutional knowledge that already exists that just aren't talking to each other? Mm-hmm. Or what does security know that safety could benefit from, but they can't talk to each other because they're speaking different languages? Right? And, and that's part of what we need to do when it comes to understanding what other people's motivations are. Because if you can understand what someone's motivations are and you can connect what you want to what they want, then it becomes a win-win. And is that generally what someone would engage a violence managing consultant? I'm, I'm giving you a term here, right? Yeah. But, but is, is, is that generally why someone would engage you? Uh, look, we get engaged for a whole bunch of different reasons. Um, some very tactical and operational, some more strategic. Uh, so we have a range of services that we offer, and it really depends on where clients are at, what their appetite is, um, obviously what their budget is, and what the, what the urgency of the situation is. Sometimes we're called in just to do training, uh, just, to, just to pump straight into to running some training courses, and, and that's fine, but it's a, it's a very, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of an operational consideration. If we're thinking more strategically, uh, then it would be things like, okay, how do we set up a system that doesn't allow for violence to happen? 
policies, procedures, governance, guidelines, accountability. How do we set those things in place? How do we get the right resourcing in place in terms of personnel and vetting and uh, per sec and infosec? And how do we get all those things working together? How do we get the right resources there? How, how do we manage our private guarding services to make sure that they're vetted and they're up to standard because we can vet all our internal employees and then we invite 500 contractors on site that we haven't vetted at all. So <laughs> how do we manage those considerations? That's the more strategic picture. So to answer your question of why people engage us, it really depends where they're at on the journey. Um, some have really robust back-end already, or there's no appetite to adjust the back-end, which is fair. Uh, and we just have to come in and, and basically do the overlay, whether it's guarding or whether it's training or whether it's uh, a particular project to address a specific issue. But the really juicy ones is when we can start from scratch or we can. there's an appetite to really look at, we have a problem and we're open to suggestion on how to fix it. Then we can start doing things that are yeah, probably more impactful longer term. I like that. I like that, and I think I think that's a that's a great approach. So, um, on, on a more personable uh, note and level, here we are. We're in a park in London, and it's sunny, and it's it, it's quite nice. And obviously, it's quite uncharacteristic of London, you know, this time of year. Um, you're you're here for 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 some time, and you've got a bit of a road show. And um, on that road show. Hopefully you get some downtime. You get to explore London <laughs> some, 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 some more. But what, what are you going to be talking about? Uh, what are you going to be lecturing about uh, this uh, trip? Yeah. So, uh, so basically, the, the the main feature of the tour is the managing violence masterclasses. So, uh, the masterclasses are broken up into two days. Uh, they are day one is social violence. Day two is predatory violence. So the social violence, we're looking at all sorts of things like uh, understanding why people get into disagreements in the first place. Okay, like very, very basic concepts. Anytime that there is a, uh, an argument, a conflict, or a potentially even a violent altercation that comes about between two people as a result of an interaction they've had, that's social violence. Right? So that could be everything from the row you have with your spouse to the pub situation to road rage to you looked at me funny, like all that kind of thing. Uh, could even be the person who is you know, uh, has had their thinking altered by some substances that is looking for someone to blame for their situation. Right? So that's all potentially social violence. So we're looking uh, at what causes people to feel like they want to resort to hurting somebody. How do we then either not be that person or two, change the way they're thinking so that they can see they can get what they really want without having to hurt somebody so that's that's the de-escalation side uh we also will look at very very much about situational awareness how to identify these scenes how to not be in dumb places where dumb things happen okay because a lot of the time people go oh, i don't know why i keep getting into, into these situations like well where where do you go to habitually and how do, who do you interact with habitually like if you're if you find yourself continually getting into violent situations then there's probably some choices you are making that's putting you there unless it's you know occupational so uh, we, we look at all those kinds of things. We'll look very, go into a lot of detail about communication strategies, how to de-escalate uh, to, to try and prevent bad things from happening. And then uh, if we can't de-escalate, how do we manage physically those situations uh, in a way that does not put us in jail? Because good self-defense shouldn't put you in jail because that's a place where you'll have to manage violence a lot more. So uh, my strategy is always let's teach the lower end first so that you have some skills because 99% of good people are not fighting for their lives pretty much ever. Most of us will go through our entire lives without having to fight for survival. So let's make sure we've got some skills to manage with those lower level situations and we don't escalate them and make them life-threatening because we're going over the top and presenting a whole bunch of legal and uh, life challenges that will, that will follow on from that. So that's the social violence day. 
And, and, and I'm interested, on, on that note, you know, a lot of people say, well, you shouldn't go and perennially go down the range to practice firearms when you don't ever use it in your day-to-day life. And maybe there's something to be said, well, actually, it can be uh, rewarding and enjoyable to sure. get better. But we equally see people going on, uh, there was a Sambo grappling course I saw, and maybe a Krav Maga or this or this. And, and, and then, you know, on TikTok, those, those videos that people put out about being able to get out of a very bad headlock. Yeah. Um, is, is, is there actually a, a, a level of training that people just shouldn't, shouldn't have because it's not going to work for them? Uh, look, I, I look at self-defense, the physical, the physical act of self-defense or protecting yourself as part of a risk management strategy. So understand what your risks are, understand where your vulnerabilities are, understand where you're, what is realistic for you, like how are you likely to be attacked, uh, and, therefore, and then you can reverse engineer from that, what skills do I need? Uh, I think there's a, there's a whole market that is built around making you think you want things you don't need. <laughs> and, and that is, uh, like if you look at nearly anything, if you go on TikTok or Instagram and you do hashtag self-defense, you, I guarantee 99% of it will be absolute rubbish that's never going to work on anybody, let alone for the people that actually need to know it. Uh, so that is rubbish. <laughs> nearly always, without exception, it's nearly always rubbish. Uh, and the people that are selling it often don't know that it's rubbish because they've never had to defend themselves either. So they don't know that it doesn't work. They just, that's just what they've been taught. So <laughs> that presents us a bit of a conundrum. So what should people actually learn? The, the main thing is, like, honestly, fighting isn't that technical. It doesn't have to be that technical. Um, human beings have been physically defending themselves for millennia without a single karate class. Right? So it's more about mindset and physicality. If you can be relatively fit and healthy... Uh, you're not inebriated, you're not putting yourself in dumb situations where you're vulnerable, uh, you're not creating relationships where multiple bad people with weapons want to hurt you, uh, because usually that doesn't happen unless you've done something to annoy those multiple bad people, uh, and you probably knew there were multiple bad people before you did those things. I'm not going to speculate, but I'm just saying historically it's, un- it's unlikely that's going to happen randomly to you. Um, and then you have the mindset of survival. Uh, a little bit of training goes a long way. And, and I don't think we need to practice a lot of different, oh, I need to, uh, need to practice this specific grab escape because the chances are, like for a regular person, the chances of you ever having to defend yourself are so minute that if that were to happen, what's the chances going to look exactly like that one grab escape you did in a class or that you watched on TikTok and memorized in practice with your boyfriend? Uh, that, that, that's not reality. Um, the, I would encourage people want to actually learn how to defend themselves. Like, for mo- again, for most people that are not having to physically defend themselves as part of their job or defend others as part of their job, start with something sporting. So start with something that you enjoy. Uh, honestly, like I've worked with rugby players that were far more physically adept than most of the martial arts black belts I've worked with because they were used to getting in and, 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 and like contact and pain and they were athletic and they were strong and they knew when to be aggressive and when to not be aggressive. That's a much better base for protecting yourself than practicing forms up and down a hall that said if practicing forms up and down a hall makes you feel happy and makes you a better human being that's also managing violence because if you're a better happier healthy human being you're probably unlikely to cause problems so i am not any i don't exclude anything but i will say if people are interested in defending themselves you probably need to look again as a through the through the lens of risk management and go what can i actually do to manage this risk not just react to it should it happen um, I would say that anything that seems like it that has more than two steps in it is probably too complicated mm. because the chance of you remembering that under pressure is almost zero. Uh, even for myself, 
training for years. Judo skills pay the bills. <laughs> My judo skills have paid the bills for a while. Uh, but uh, there have been times where I just blanked in the moment because I was taken by surprise. So, And that's with thousands of hours of repetition. Um, so let alone someone who's going to watch a TikTok video and think they can defend themselves. Uh, yeah, because they don't have the attention span to watch a three-minute version on YouTube. That's right. <laughs> right? So um, being realistic about things is important. Um, I think, Bruce, to finish answering your question before about uh, what I'm teaching, so the day two is a predatory violence, which is uh, much more about getting inside the head of a predator. And how, how do predators, and predators aren't um, just, I guess, to define terms, is anyone who is committing an act of violence that is premeditated. Okay, so they're out looking for a target. It's not about you personally necessarily. It's about you represent a target. Okay, and we'll, we'll break down what's the difference between a resource predator, which is someone who is using violence as a tool to get something from you, whether it's bag snatching, you know, abduction, whatever. Uh, so the resource predator, process predators, which are more dangerous process predators, they're into it for the actual act. They want to do the act, mm. right? And they're, they're obviously much more dangerous because you can't just drop your wallet and give it to them. Um, then we, then uh, another one that I, that I throw in there often is, is status, status predators or status predators, which are people that are doing the violent thing because it gives them a sense of status or hierarchy or, or, uh, or respect or something within, within their own social structures. So when we're talking about predatory behavior, it could be anything from the guy who lurks in the car park ready to snatch a handbag from the mum when she puts her kid in the car and leaves the handbag sitting on the trolley. Uh, that, that's, that's a form of predatory behaviour. But it could also be people that are trying to groom children, that are trying to get close to children or close to families to get access to children. Um, it could also be right up to and including terrorism. Uh, it's, it's all predatory behaviour. So we're looking very much at understanding how that works. I'm going to work with, with students who are you know, typically good people, at least I hope so, uh, to, uh, to be able to break down what are the natural predatory instincts that all human beings have? Because we all have them. Like we're only a couple of generations removed from having to hunt to eat. Right, so we all have the, bil- the ability to identify a target, to pursue a target, to create a plan to, to acquire that target. We all have that ability. Uh, we just, most of us don't ever apply that to another human being. But if you can understand how you do it yourself, then you'll understand how other people do it. And then we can reverse engineer from that. Uh, we'll work with the students to, uh, to develop their own threat package, which is basically understanding where they are vulnerable in their own lives. Uh, and ha- who might seek to harm them? How would that person seek to harm them? What do they have or what do they do or what do they portray that might make them attractive to a predator? And looking at, looking at that through a personal lens, then whereabouts would I be vulnerable? What about my... my uh, how, how secure is my home? What sort of neighbourhood do I live in? Do I know my neighbours? How do I commute to work? Where do, I, where do I go during the course of my work? What's my office environment? Where do I go for lunch? How do I get back home again? What's my evening like? What are my social hobbies? Like breaking down all of this to see where the vulnerabilities are. And then once we can identify what a couple of vulnerabilities are, then we'll work with them to be able to address those vulnerabilities so they actually leave safer than they started. Um, that's, uh, that's, that's a pretty big day. It's a pretty full day. Um, and there's a bunch of fun activities involved that I can't really share too much about. But, uh, but uh, yeah, so that's, um, that's a predatory violence one. So we, we go into pretty bit of detail. There's, and there's a little bit of physical stuff in that one as well. There's, there's physical skills as well. More higher level, uh, less use of force considerations. Because if you're dealing with a predator, then um, some, yeah, it, it's usually a worse day. <laughs> yeah, so so the, the higher end skills may be required there. Yeah. And, and, and it's great that you're you know, so focusing on this, on this roadshow. And... And I'm, I'm interested just kind of from you. You've, you've, you've been outside of uh, Australia for 
I don't know, a couple of days. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's, it's lovely that you've, you've, you've come here and it's, it's lovely to welcome you. Who would you be wanting to connect with? I know you've connected with a lot of people mm -hmm. uh, online, myself included. Yep. Um, it's been fantastic. But now you're out and about, who do you want to connect with? Uh, look, <laughs> it's such a cliche to say as many people as possible, but honestly, like through my podcast, uh, through through being on a, a number of your events uh, with CTG, with MSS, with with uh, the circuit, and, and and all the related brands, uh, I have been able to connect virtually on LinkedIn and, and other platforms with so many people in the security industry, in the risk management industry, in the self defense industry, and and a whole bunch of other connected entities. Uh, I, I want to connect with as many people as possible that uh, that share the mission, right? At, at the end of the day, like, yeah, making profit is cool. I want to share the mission. I, I want to have uh, as many people fighting this fight as possible, as many people as possible that are trying to make other people safer. Uh, and if there's people out there, by the time this goes to air, if, if I'm still in the country, if that's you, um, and even if, even if it's not by the time I'm still in the country, reach out to me online, I'll be back again. Uh, assuming, yeah, fingers crossed, no more pandemics, world wars or anything in between. Uh, I'll hopefully be back. Uh, so, um, but yeah, look, even just virtually, anyone who is interested in sharing this mission in making people safer, teaching people and giving people the skills to keep themselves, their families, their communities safer, uh, I'm, I'm happy to talk and meet with absolutely anybody because uh, that's, that's what makes me get up in the morning. And uh, your, your, your podcast is certainly something that inspires a lot of people to themselves get up in the morning as well. I, I know uh, I was just uh, talking to our friends in the States at a Southwest thing I was doing, and they all know you. They listen to the, the podcast. Um, what, what have you got coming up for the, for, for the podcast? Are you, are you going to try and get in some interviews whilst you're here? Any new topics? Yeah, look, I, unfortunately, uh, a combination of time scheduling and uh, baggage allowance <laughs> stopped me from bringing too much of my podcasting gear. Uh, but if I do get the opportunity, I'll probably do some, some lower lower uh, quality <laughs> audio recording with the gear I've got. But um, no, look, coming up on the Managing Violence podcast, we've got, um, I'm going to continue interviewing the best people in the world. <laughs> There's Honestly, I have become, I guess, uh, <laughs> I guess a conduit for for people that are a lot smarter than me <laughs> to be able to share with me to be able to and then in by turn you know share with the world so uh i don't um i don't think personally i'm i'm contributing anything that's that's, that's that special i just i i, mean, I think uh, you are well, <laughs> thank you I, i'll try try to be humble about it but it's, it's really about the conversations that i've been able to have with with people that everyone from like my last episode was with uh, dr lorraine sheridan who's one of the world's leading experts in stalking uh she originally from the uk uh, but uh yeah, talking to someone who is a, an absolute expert in something as niche as stalking, and then at the same time being able to have a conversation with uh, someone about threat assessment, and then being able to have a conversation with someone about executive protection, and then be able to have a conversation about child safety, and then have a conversation about how to recover from post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, I've got uh, an interesting lead that I'm going to be following up to talk to one of the world's leading experts in pain management. How do we manage pain? What is the impact of pain? What's the psychological impact of pain? What do people get addicted to pain? Like, there's all sorts of interesting things that are sort of tangentially connected to managing violence. Originally, uh, early listeners of the podcast will know that it started off very much as a physical self-defense martial arts podcast. Uh, over the last couple of years, has really evolved into this holistic, broad spectrum of, of managing violence, and, uh, and we'll continue to do that. Uh, the other thing I'll plug as well, uh, because it'll be of interest to a lot of your listeners, is the Presilience podcast. We mentioned Presilience before. Mm. Um, so uh, 
as if, if you read the bio, you'll know, uh, that, uh, that I work for Risk2 Solution. So I have my own managing violence podcast and teach my own things, but I'm also, I also work for Risk2 Solution uh, as a national practice lead for our violence prevention division and also a, a consultant across our broader risk management spectrum. Uh, and uh, I'm also fortunate to host the Presilience podcast, which is the Risk2 Solution podcast. Uh, we've just given that a bit of a relaunch. So uh, there'll be more episodes coming along that line. Uh, we just had a uh, a really interesting panel talking about the implications of the Russia-Ukraine conflict for businesses in Australia, being an Australian company, uh, and just supply chain and, and looking to the future about what that all means for us. Uh, and uh, we we just had another a really excellent episode with our, gen- our general manager of education talking about how we educate people uh, in risk management and how do we control the narrative around education? How do we get good buy-in? How do we get students to actually want to be, if we're talking about workplace training, how do we get people to actually want to be there as opposed to something they have to do? Uh, so we had a really cool conversation about that as well. But um, so Presilience podcast, Managing Violence podcast, uh, they're both worth having a look at if you're interested in anything I've said. Absolutely. Well, I'm, uh, I'm going to continue uh, our walk around this uh, beautiful park in London. I'm, I'm trying to paint a picture for those just listening with audio. Um, but, uh, but Joe, it's, it's, it's a pleasure to see you, and I, I really hope you have a great uh, trip. Uh, my absolute pleasure, and uh, my much great appreciation to you and also to all the people that were kind enough to walk around our camera while we're, while we're recording. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Wonderful to see Joe in person and walk around such a beautiful part of London. And you probably heard the birds were chirping, the sun was shining. It was a beautiful, beautiful day. So what better introduction to the UK for an Australian? I think that uh, that that was fantastic. Um, what what did what did you sort of take away from today's session, Sean? I think it was interesting what you were saying. How once an incident happens and. You waste a lot of time teaching people, you know, unarmed combat techniques that maybe they're not they're going to use once in a blue moon. You know, unless you're you're regularly training and practicing these techniques, you can have a lot of skill feared. So you can waste a lot of time teaching these things. And I think a lot better effort can be made on communication skills and how to de-escalate situations, as Joe said, because if you don't have the communication skills, we, we communicate every day. And if you can improve them skills, so if you're in a situation and someone's getting aggressive with you, you know, just learning to tone it down, you know, don't get upset, try and calm it down, try not to escalate that situation. And I think whilst, you know, the, having a you know, martial art or some form of unarmed combat techniques is amazing and fantastic and for sure are going to come in useful. I think the communication skills are, you know, and number one tool in the box of any CPO. Because he, he sort of gives a, a quite a stark analogy. Um, a, a four-year-old being taught how to escape the bear hug of a grown man, it's probably not the best skill for them in that they're probably not going to achieve it, even if they mastered that, you know. So so, so just thinking outside the box and progressing that, maybe the presilience would be to, to, to give them an, an alarm, They'd give a four-year-old an alarm, you know. I, I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm just, I'm just uh, thinking here. But that also speaks to many of the times on the podcast we've talked about the sexy versus staple uh, skills. Now, don't get me wrong. Even if a sexy skill never gets employed, it's going to keep you engaged. It's going to keep you motivated. Um, There's people in the States, they thrive on on, uh, target practice. So 
that's good. Even, you know, hopefully they'll never have to draw a firearm. Or here, we're, we're not allowed, um, you know, uh, firearms. So there's, there's, there's nothing wrong with the sexy skills. There's nothing wrong with um, karate and, 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 and being super fit. But it's about risk management and, 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 and being adequately pre-zillient. I hope I'm not taking that term out of, out, out of, out of turn, uh, Joe. But, but what's also nice is to see that people are moving again and people are training again. And, of course, Joe is in the UK until, uh, I think, mid-April um, with, with, with a stint in Switzerland. Nice. So, 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 so we, we're doing a bit to, to plug, plug, uh, plug his tour. Um, what else have we got uh, going on uh, at the moment, Sean? Because I, I know the magazine is proceeding apace and I know that, uh, that, that we've got lots of great stuff on, on the app. No, we have. I mean, myself, I've been tremendously busy on the business front at the moment. Um, BBA-wise, we've still got, we've got a new website in the making, um, which has been going on for quite some time now. So hopefully we can get that pushed through and, and live with some new benefits for our members. Circuit Magazine, new issue coming up. And even for the future issues, as always, if you've got any, if you're an aspiring writer, if you've got some content you'd like to send to us, please get it across. We'd love to have it. And I should really shout out because because last week uh, it was not just Joe that I met. Um, we saw a good number of BBA uh, members, including uh, Mohammed Akram. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, who came to an event I ran on the HMS Belfast with the help of a bunch of associations in the industry uh, on diversity. You, you'll remember last time we had our session with Dawn Holmes, a uh, fantastic advocate for diversity, and uh, that, that, that event actually worked out rather nicely. But the takeaway for our listenership is probably great to see so many of you. <laughs> um, it's, 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 it's always a great touch point when we actually make those uh, segues and connections. Managing violence and resilience, quite a key topic and i think as you know joe might have alluded to uh they're going to hopefully bring those training courses to the uk so we'll hopefully see more from our antipodean uh, friends from sean and myself this has been another fantastic edition of the circuit magazine podcast you have been listening to the circuit magazine podcast be sure to subscribe and be sure to not miss an episode